Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. 20 years ago today, the world was a very different place. The twin towers of the World Trade Center still dominated the Manhattan skyline. Hardly anyone had heard of Al-Qaeda, much less Osama bin Laden. And the combined forces of the United States and Britain hadn't yet ventured into Afghanistan. Tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of that day of horror known as 9-11. And even now, it produces incredibly strong reactions for all the people that remember the day, for all those who lost loved ones, for everyone who witnessed the world changing before their very eyes. This morning, we will be remembering that day in a variety of ways. The independence Kim Sengupta joins us in the studio just a week after returning from Afghanistan and witnessing the scenes at Kabul airport as we endeavoured to airlift as many people as we could out of the hands uh, of the ghastly Taliban. Lindsay Fifield will be here from her base in Washington, D.C. with a recollection of that day and the latest from the Biden White House where Joe Biden, the President of the United States, is now telling people that he wants to mandate vaccines. That's right, he wants you to take a vaccine whether you like it or not. We'll also be talking to Sujo John, a survivor who was working on the 81st floor of Tower One when the first plane hit. And Mari Bryan, who happens to be my sister, uh, who will tell us what it was like to be in Manhattan the day the sky fell in. She was actually on the phone to some traders in the trade centre when the planes hit. 0344 499 Up first, though, we've got Richard Tice, who will give us his verdict on the week in politics, why the Tories are now trailing Labour, what he makes of the tax hike to save the NHS, and why the government should follow the science and not vaccinate 12 to 15-year-old boys. 0344 499 Speaking of the NHS, there are two fascinating stories making the news this morning. The first is that nearly half of the staff working inside the health service are not medically trained, and the second is that a coroner has now linked several deaths to the absence of GPs working in their surgeries and seeing patients face-to-face. The NHS crisis is now bigger than ever. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So... 20 years ago, uh, it's the uh, 9th of September, uh, 10th of September rather, the 11th of September is a day that will forever be etched in the history uh, of the world. Richard Tice is here with me. Good morning to you, Richard. Good morning Um, to you, mate. Very difficult uh, to remember what happened that day because even now, 20 years later, people are in tears thinking about it. People lost loved ones. A lot of British people died in the towers. I mean, it was a remarkable and and horrible day, wasn't it? It was unbelievable. I'm quite sure that uh, anybody who, frankly, was alive will remember exactly where they were mm. when the news came through, when yeah. they first became aware. It's one of those events, lifetime events, you never forget. No. And you're then completely spellbound. And uh, a, the, you know, the, the, the impact of the day itself and the horror and the nearly 3,000 people who tragically lost their mm. lives, the, the, the tens of thousands who were seriously injured, 
and the consequences of all that. But then it's the consequences that have impacted on the rest of our lives across the whole world, mm. literally over the last 20 years. And recent events in Afghanistan are actually a direct consequence from, uh, you know, from 9-11. Yeah. It's extraordinary to, to reflect on how that has dominated so much of what has happened mm. in in the world, in, in the way that our leaders have responded, you know, the, 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 the thousands and thousands of troops who lost their lives in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, who were injured, the, the, the tens or hundreds yeah. of thousands of civilians, likewise, all of these consequences as a direct result yeah. of that one And event. all of the sort of tit-for-tat attacks, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the secondary terrorist attacks that have happened in the past 10 to 20 years, the 7-7 yep. attack, of course, in London, I mean, it really was the day that the world changed, wasn't it? It, it, was, it was the day that the world changed. And what it really highlights is the, the huge consequences that flows from individual leaders' decisions, mm. the seismic impact that they have based on the advice that they're getting from a small cabal of people. There's some amazing documentaries mm. on the various channels about 9-11 at the moment, which I would urge people to watch. Uh, because actually you really see how a very small team of people making decisions, right or wrong, with the advice that's good or bad, motivated by who knows what, mm. and the flow of consequences from that mm. really has struck me this week as I've been yeah. watching some of these documentaries. Yes, it's been remarkable. I watched one um, which was on ITV this week, which was simply um, a series of people's recollections through their telephones and how they were either, you know, people were living in New Jersey, there was a, a family living right next door to the World Trade Center. There was another family who were visiting and were tourists yeah. and caught up in it all. I mean, just extraordinary. And, the, and there's, a, there's a brilliant one, I think it's on the BBC, about literally 12 hours with the President mm. of, of the United States, George Bush, uh, on the day, which, yeah. is, which is well worth watching. Uh, so, no, I, I just think it's the, you know, as we look forward... And, um, you know, as we as we worry about the decisions that the leaders of governments are making at the moment with the various issues, the consequences of these massive decisions, mm. uh, you know, they they live with us for a very long time. And that's why you know, I keep using the word leadership. Uh, and that's why I'm so worried about mm. uh, the, con the the impact of bad decisions, bad leadership that we're seeing at the yes. moment in the same way that the consequences of some wrong decisions made, you know, clearly going into Iraq, for example, based on, on bad intelligence, yeah. flawed motivation, you know, a variety of things. Mm. And and the impact of that is so significant. Oh, for sure. And I'm going to ask the question to everyone out there this morning, you know, are we safer now than we were 20 years ago? And I think the answer is we're not. And when you look at Joe Biden in the White House now, uh, and the way that he's behaved in the first seven months of his uh, presidency, it's a nightmare, isn't it? I, I think definitely. Uh, in a sense, the security threat is different. The security threat now is really from from rogue actors, mm. uh, rogue regimes, uh, who who can you know they they can get their hands on uh, you know horrendous weapons, and and you know, even even with COVID, in a sense, terrorists mm. who wish us serious harm are now thinking, well, how can we create mm. a uh, a bioweapon? Yeah, and and so yeah, I I don't think there's I don't feel that we are any safer. Uh, we may well be less safe. Uh, the, the threats have changed, and we have to change with it. And the question is, are we doing a good job of that? Mm. And speaking of Joe Biden and, and some of the strange decisions he's making, incredible to hear him overnight basically telling everyone that he wants to mandate vaccination. I mean, just it, quite extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, you know, people should listen to him because 
you're literally saying, as I understand, he's going to give uh, government workers about 75 days to get vaccinated or to lose their job. Yeah. And essentially, I think he's going to um, uh, try and, and put moral pressure, if not legal pressure, on private companies to do something similar. Mm. So, And some uh, of them already have been doing that, because I, I, I think I'm right in saying uh, that a couple of the big banks in New York have started doing it. Goldman Sachs, I think, have said that they can't, they won't allow people in, to, certainly into the building, unless they've been vaccinated. And I know that CNN fired three right. people They'd, who came to the building having not had the vaccine. And, and again, it, it's it's about these decisions and the consequences. And, you know, we've, we've, we've been sort of bashed over the head for 18 months with this thing, follow the science. Well, yeah. it's quite clear now, it's really important people understand that scientists disagree like economists disagree. Mm. And I think it's fascinating this week, for example, the chief executive of one of the vaccine makers, AstraZeneca, writing in the Daily Telegraph that, uh, you know, we shouldn't be doing a booster program yet mm. because he wants to see more of the data. Yeah. And he wrote it with his chief researcher. Uh, he's not saying we shouldn't ever, but he's saying they still want to see more of the data yeah. uh, and, and that we should be using the supply of doses that are available to give one dose yeah. to more people around the world yes. than a third dose to those in Western nations. Mm. So that was interesting. You've got Professor Sarah Gilbert yes. uh, saying, saying, more, or less say, the same saying thing. more or less the same thing. And, you know, I think that the government should listen to this people because they seem to have they're, they're, they're in real danger of deciding that actually a journalist who's prime minister, a banker who's the health secretary and a pollster who's the vaccine minister. Yeah. They seem to think that their experience, their knowledge uh, is actually uh, greater mm. than the scientists that they claim to have been right. following and for bizarrely, recent months. Bizarrely, they follow the scientists who are not scientists, i.e. the behavioural scientists, yes. but they don't follow the real scientists, the real scientists. who are the ones in the JCVI. I mean, on my show last Sunday, I kept running the clip of the Prime Minister saying that the JCVI were probably the best in the world. Mm. And yet he's now uh, essentially putting huge pressure on uh, Professor uh, Chris Whitty yeah. uh, to essentially overrule the JCVI mm. on the basis of children's education um, and social Yeah, factors. so now apparently they're saying it's for their mental health. And you're going, sorry, Hang what, on. so you're going to inject so, my child with a vaccine which you can't guarantee is safe for that child in the future because it's better for his mental health, really? And, and, and completely ignoring the statement from their own JCVI. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, we're in a very, very strange place. And this is this story is going to run and run. And I I really do worry about the consequences if they overrule the JCVI. Mm. I think this this goes into a, a, well, surely, a different if, bad place. If you take the view that much of what they've done has been done in case something terrible happens, surely they wouldn't want to do something that might result in something terrible happening. Well, um, any doctor will say to you that the first the first rule is is do no harm. Right. And if you are told by the JCVI within their statement that what they're really worried about is the magnitude of the unknown potential harms, then then you, you should be really looking mm. at that statement and thinking, just hang on, folks. Let's just, yeah. you know, we need to double, treble if, and if, quadruple check everything. If the best course of, 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 uh, of action is to be cautious, which is what they keep saying they are, then let's be cautious. Let's and in be that cautious. case, let's not uh, inject 12 to 15-year-old young men who, as, as, you, as you've pointed out on Twitter, uh, in one of your uh, Twitter shares, um, is, is a risk. That's right. And, you know, there are, there are uh, as, as reported by the JCVI, you know, there are accepted uh, genuine concerns about the impact of heart inflammation, what's called myocarditis, mm. uh, on 12 to 15-year-olds. Yeah. It looks though particularly uh, amongst boys. Mm. And, you know, that is, that is a concern. And that's what the JCVI are wanting to look at closely. And, yes, uh, they, they are taking 
uh, more time uh, essentially to look at it and we would expect them yeah. to take as much time as they want they've, they've come up the, with their ruling and the fact that other countries have chosen to do something different really shouldn't weigh on their professional judgment they've made their judgment mm. and i think it should be respected absolutely right and and you know it's a it's a small risk that something could happen but nevertheless, it's a risk. And if there's a small risk, it's all very well for all these kind of, you know, um, government supporters who say, oh, well, it's just a small risk. Well, that's fine. But, you know, it's my child. So I'm sorry. I'm and, not willing to take that small risk. And, and what I discussed last Sunday, and I think this is a, you know, in a sense, we believe in freedom of choice. And there are millions of parents who do want to vaccinate their children mm. and who seem to be, you know, they, they've, they've obviously looked at it and they've said they're comfortable. And, and I, I wonder whether there's a middle ground here, Mike, mm. where, where in a sense... As I say, scientists can disagree, and, and and that's fine. You know, maybe you get to the position where, because at the moment, as I understand, it's not yet lawful in the United Kingdom, mm. uh, certainly in England, to vaccinate 12 to 15-year-olds. No. So maybe they get to the point where they make it lawful to do so, but actually, because of the JCVI position, they're not actually, as a government, recommending yes. to do so. Well, do you know so, what because, I found? Because I do think it's really important to... We've, we've got to reduce the division. We've got to try and heal the nation and bring people forwards. And I think the more they try and morally mandate stuff, I think the more uh, people split. And I don't think that's good for families. It's not good for no. communities. Uh, and it's not good for the nation. No, I mean, I remember watching uh, Sajid Javid the other day giving an interview in which he said, well, if the parents um, don't want the child to be vaccinated, but the child does want to be vaccinated, then... Uh, we will look at the individual case and we will make a decision based upon whether that child is able to give full and knowledgeable consent, right? And I thought to myself, I wonder if they'd do that the other way around. You know, if the parents, you know, somehow wanted them to be vaccinated and the child didn't want to be vaccinated, would they also then support the child and say, well, in that case, you're not going to get vaccinated? I suspect they wouldn't. I, th I think it's th this is a very bad place for, uh, you know, for, for any government to go down. I really do think, mm. you know, it's, you, I think... There is nothing closer, tighter than uh, than you know than, than families, loved ones, and and, and bloodlines. And mm. I think I think the government's going to be really, really careful uh, about this. And I think that in a sense, y you've got to get to a position where it's going to come down to uh, to personal choice. But I think I think you know with children, you know the government's got to respect individual mm. parents and families' choices, uh, one way or the other. I I, I think it's. I think it's really seismic and I really worry about the consequences of the government overruling mm. the scientists that they've been uh, been basically completely reliant on for the mm. last 18 months right. and where that takes it. Exactly I think it's right. really serious. One thing that we don't have any choice in, of course, is the uh, uplift in the tax that we're going to be paying to look after all these people. Um, so 1.25%, or if you're particularly unlucky, like me, 2.5% uh, you're going to be paying uh, in uh, next April. Well, I mean, let's be clear, this is the biggest tax rise mm. in one go uh, for, I think, over 60 years, mm. possibly 70 years. The total tax take of the country is now at the highest for 70 years. Yeah, it's like 35%. And, you know, something, it's right? utterly awful. Right. Um, uh, in a sense, um, we at Reform UK are, are, in a sense, one of the beneficiaries because we've just now got our highest poll rating ever. Uh, and, you know, in a sense, uh, mighty oaks grow from small mm. acorns, but yeah. we've just crossed the 5% threshold. And you know we're delighted with and that, and that's because and we're now we're now the only people saying actually you need to cut taxes, mm. you need to be smartly regulated. That will create higher growth, higher wages, and that creates more tax revenues to invest in better public services. And the disastrous thing sounds about, like a conservative policy. That funny that For, formerly the, known as formerly known as the disastrous <laughs> thing about what the government's done is they're pouring all this money into the NHS, 
simply to create more bureaucracy yeah. and pay bureaucrats 270 grand yeah. a year plus pensions. Well, exactly. Th there's no suggestion of reforming the system so that you actually bring the waiting list down. None of that. And what, I, I, mark my words, I'll say it here and now, in, in, in two or three years' time, uh, if they're still around, this government will be coming back saying, we've run out of money, we haven't brought down the waiting list mm. because we didn't do the they reforms. So we'll have to raise the taxes even more because we haven't got any money yeah. to invest in the social care uh, system that we promised we'd sorted two or three years ago. Yeah, You know, you, you can see it. You, it's like reading a book. Mm, exactly it's like right. night follows day. And this is the same um, uh, Westminster Voting Intention poll from British Electoral Politics that has Labour now two points ahead of the Tories. Well, it, it, it's not surprising in that uh, they are... The two almost... I've, I've been calling them the con-socialists now mm. for some time. Mm. And so I, th I think people have, uh, you know, people... And it's interesting, isn't it, that actually the pennies dropped, that taxes are going up, that they've broken yet another promise. They've gone against their word yet again. The list is so long. Mm. You're actually... It's not as long as your arm. It's as long as your second arm yeah. now. Yeah. And people have said, enough's enough. You can't trust a single word this government says. And again, it's a really bad place for us as a nation to be in because we all grew up learning to trust the government, to trust our civil servants. Mm. And when you hear vaccine ministers and other ministers say one thing and then within a matter of days or weeks totally contradict themselves, uh, you really do start to worry mm. about what's going on. You do. We'll come back to that because I want to talk about vaccine passports with you. Richard Tice is here, leader of the Reform Party, now at 5%, by the way, uh, which is only 4% behind the Greens. So you never know. Something's going on. It must be something to do with talk radio. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Uh, we'll be back after this. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are with Richard Tice this morning. He's got another big show coming up on um, Sunday. And you're going to venture into the dangerous world of travel and uh, commuting, aren't you? Well, absolutely, because obviously, you know, we're all uh, focusing on reducing emissions. And one of the ways to do that is these, the, the great new e-scooter revolution. Mm. So I thought that we should have a debate on it. So I saw I've a got... picture of you with one That's the other right. day. You, it... haven't, you haven't gone over to the other side of it. Well, I, I just wanted to... It's great to learn. You never <laughs> stop learning, Mike, even no. at my ripe old age. No, absolutely right. And That's so, true. you know, you can't talk about something unless you've experienced it. Right, so did you have a go on one? So then? I had a go on one. Right. And it was safe. I didn't fall off. Right. Um, being a competitive sort of chap, I was slightly disappointed when mm. lots of cyclists were streaming past me. Yes. Uh, calling me slow coach. But of course, what you don't realise with some of these cyclists is they're on electric bikes. Well, there is that as well. 40 miles an hour. Yeah. Well, this uh, this scooter was limited to 10 miles an hour. So, so is this frankly, one of the ones you can hire? This is one of the ones you right. can hire. Um, anyway, I shall be talking about that and having a big debate on Sunday. So tune into that. OK. And are you one of those who thinks, like I do, that they should be at least registered? And if you have one, you ought to be traceable. Yeah, I, I'm a great believer. Where you've got a problem, come up with a solution at yeah. the same time. Don't mm. just whinge about the problem. So, so yes, there's way I think there's ways around lots of those issues, mm. like registration, with speed limitation. And you, I think you've got to try stuff. And that's why, actually, I think it's good to have these trials uh, and to learn from it. Mm. Uh, that's you know that's that's well, that's we'll where see. I'm sort of at. Ten o'clock on Sunday, you, you can listen into in. the big debate. I mean, I've had some people uh, expressing concern about their state of mind, saying, <laughs> "What the hell's Tice up to? What's he doing?" Um, but I've assured them that you're fine. I think um, it's important to have an open mind. Yes, absolutely right. Now, one of the things I have noticed this week, and I was sitting just across the way from uh, the front of our office the other day, lots and lots more people coming into work, lots of people seemingly returning for the first time. I've actually seen people in this building talking to each other, going, "Isn't it great to be back?" So they've literally not been here it's extraordinary. since 
since last March, yeah, or a year the, ago in March. And there's no question, this week has seen the big shift. Mm. London is much busier mm. uh, in the city, in the West End, uh, and, and in, around Victorian places, and that's great. Yeah. You know, that's to be, uh, to be applauded, and uh, not before time, frankly. Uh, but you know, it's gonna, it's still gonna take some time. Mm. But it, you know, I think the process of, of, we're in, of we're, getting we're back is, in the right is we're moving we? in the right direction. Uh, and and uh, you know, I just think it is. Yes, you can you can work from home productively for a day a week or two days a week, and I think that will be for many people that will be where mm. this ends up. Right. Uh, but I do think you know there are there are huge issues about productivity if you're working from well, home. Well, we're going five to be talking about the DVLA coming up a little while because you know how we've got this problem with HGV drivers. Yes, people are telling me that the DVLA is practically now no longer even working. Oh, you know, if you try and apply for a driving license of any kind, they're telling you it's at least three to four months before they can get absolutely. back to you. No, I mean it's it, it's madness, and and you're seeing it everywhere. This excuse, you know, COVID is an excuse for poor performance, mm. bad service, and it exemplifies itself in the civil service, in the various departments. It's not just the DVLA, you know, it's the passport office. Yeah. Well, no, nobody's in this, they're all at home. No one's in, so, so everything takes much, much longer. Yeah. And uh, you know, the impact on the HGV drivers is awful. The, there's many factors behind the HGV crisis. Uh, but, but the key one that I'm hearing from drivers themselves, and exactly, is we have no idea how badly paid they were mm. um, for actually what is, you know, what is a very lonely job, but also a very responsible mm. job. Uh, and, and, you know, some of these people are being paid £10, £12 an hour. Well, they can earn more as an Amazon driver yeah. in a small car. Right. Uh, so it's not surprising what's happened. And I think, you know, a lot of these big businesses, they need to give themselves a very long, hard look because the truth is they're the ones who are responsible for not paying these people properly. Mm. Uh, they had it too easy for too long. And it's come back to bite them where it hurts. Yeah, I think that's right. And finally, uh, the one other big story of the week that we probably will find you covering on Sunday as well, the migrant crisis still going on, still thousands of people arriving on our shores. Priti Patel now saying she's going to send them back. She's not, is she? Look, I, I think the reality is that we, we know with Priti Patel, she talks a great game and nothing ever happens. Mm. I've actually been saying that you can use the, the laws that she's now uh, talking about it's the way you interpret the mm. rules and the international laws. I've been saying for months and months there are existing rules that you could interpret to do exactly what she suggests, and you can safely uh, turn the boats back and and pick people up and take them back from where they came. Mm. That is, it, it's but it's how you interpret those. But no, I don't think uh, I don't think it'll happen. It's another great headline for her. She continues to be the darling of the uh, you know the the Tory base, but uh, in reality, I, I, just, I just don't see these people having the political will to actually carry it out. No, as long as they want to come here, they will continue it, to but, come. But, it, but let's be clear, what she's suggesting, I've been suggesting for months, it's the only way that this crisis will be stopped. And the evidence is there because it's what Australia did mm. and they stopped it. Absolutely right. Richard Tice back uh, on Sunday at 10 o'clock right here on Talk Ready. He's going to be talking about scooters amongst other things, a great many things. Uh, it's a great show. You want to tune into that. Richard, thanks very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say that we've got Kim Sengupta with us in the studio. Kim, a very good morning to you. Welcome and to, you, to Talk Radio. And thank you so much for the great work you did with us um, when you were in Afghanistan uh, under what I would imagine was considerable difficulties working at Kabul Airport. Um, you're here now because we've known each other a very long time. I, I hate to think how long it is. It's probably more than 20 years, actually, I would imagine. Uh, probably more like 30. Mm. Um, and we've been in places together. You've been in many dangerous war zones. Where were you on 9-11 uh, and what happened? Well, 9-11, I was in London, Mike. And then I and, and many colleagues, of course, went to New York. Mm. I think we arrived in New York 
at three days or two days after the event via Canada. We drove down from Toronto. Right. And then we had... Because presumably you couldn't actually fly into Kennedy. You could couldn't you? fly into Kennedy. Um, and I think we had the second transatlantic flight um, uh, to get there. Mm. And then I had three weeks in New York, came back to London. And then after a few weeks, a um, couple of weeks, went to Afghanistan. Mm. We flew into Bagram Air Base, which then, of course, became the center of operations for uh, for US and UK forces. Mm. And that, of course, is the base which the Americans left at night, High not, and not, telling their, not telling their Afghan allies that they're leaving. Yeah, well, that was an incredible thing, wasn't it? One of the things I think that we were all amazed by was the fact that they left so much hardware behind, that they left all the equipment, they left all the... I know some of it was in the hands of the Afghan uh, army, but so much hardware, military, um, you know, helicopters, guns, you know, vehicles, it was extraordinary what they left behind. Well, I mean, altogether, I think the estimate now, and I think it will rise, Mike, is, is about $85 billion. Yeah dollars worth of kit, yes. American and, and Afghan forces right. are now, now in, in Taliban hands. Now, some of them, which we saw in, some of them which we saw in Kabul, are defunct, you know, they are out of date, right. but, but many are not. And because of the, the chaos on the final evacuation, a lot of the stuff they meant to blow up mm. at the airbase, and just, they just didn't have the time. They just didn't have time. So and Taliban was it, I mean, as far as your understanding of events is, was it literally a sort of, let's go, we're out? Joe Biden suddenly said, because there was talk that they wanted to be out before the anniversary of 9-11, which is obviously tomorrow. Um, was it as quick as that? Well, I mean, the actual date itself, mm. or the shifting timeline, also caused, of course, uh, confusion and, yeah. and panic among the Afghans. I mean, if you remember, Mike, uh, President Biden, first of all, said 9-11 symbolically, and, and then we were told they'll all be out by 19th August. Right. And then we were told they'll all be out by 31st August. Right. And of course, you know, this was going on with, with little or no consultation with allies, especially the Afghan allies on the ground. Mm. They, in the meantime, were facing this onslaught from the, from the Taliban who went on the offensive right. as soon as uh, the Americans announced the withdrawal date. Yes. So altogether, it was, you know, chaos and, and, and violence and panic. And it was awful. And I mean, it did seem as though they took control of Afghanistan relatively easily. Um, there didn't appear to be an awful lot of bloodshed at that time because they were the ones that had all the weaponry and they weren't really fighting anyone. Well, that's one good thing, Mike, is that if you recall before our time, but in the 1990s when the Russians left, mm. that was the beginning of this very, very savage yeah. civil war. Right. And that hasn't happened this time because the Afghan state, not just the Afghan military, but extraordinarily the Afghan state collapsed within a matter of weeks or so. Yeah. And, and, and they did that, I think, you know, with, with a fair amount of, of uh, bribery involved. You know, we spoke to Afghan forces and government militias who, unless they're synchronizing their stories, they more or less had the same narrative that, you know, sometimes they're doing quite well against the Talibs. Mm. And then suddenly there would be an order from above that there's a ceasefire, withdraw, right. and they left. Yes. And, and, and very often they couldn't understand why they were leaving when they were at the point of advance. Yeah, I was saying earlier today that 9-11 um, really was a kind of watershed moment for the world, the, the day the world changed. And it has changed very much so, I think, for the worse. Um, when you went into Afghanistan the first time, back then in, in uh, uh, 20 years ago, what was your... What was what was in your mind then? I mean, did you think that that would be a twenty-year process? Did you think that they would go after this guy Osama bin Laden, who we didn't know very much about at the time? What was what was what was the news like in those days? Well, it was 
again chaotic, but in a rather positive way, mm. you know, because they've had, you know, these these years and years of 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 um, grey Taliban rule where all joy was basically banned. Right. You know, the colours were black and brown for women. You know, mm. there was no music. There was no kite flying. Right. You know, women went on the street. Right. You know, you had the sort of men wearing uniform beards. And then suddenly it seemed like there was a, a shaft of sunlight, really. Yeah. And, you know, the, the suddenly colours, you know, there's music, you know, satellite dishes started coming up. Mm. You know, we had women throwing off their hijab. And, and it seemed like, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but it did seem like the beginning of a, of a brave new world. Mm. But one thing was clear was, you know, they were looking for uh, 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 Osama bin Laden yeah. and Mullah Omar, the Taliban leader. Uh, it took them a while, but... Um, but I think they almost got him in Tora Bora, if you remember, Mike. Yes. And, and then he escaped to Pakistan. And right. They got him eventually in 2011. And they got him eventually in 2011. Now, it all seems such a long time ago now, doesn't it? Mm. And, I mean, I wonder what you think about how safe the world is now. Because, I mean, the one view is that the Taliban are back in Afghanistan. What was the whole? What was the point of the 20 years of being there? I suppose the danger uh, and the question is, are they going to be content with staying there? Are they just going to make Afghanistan their territory and their home and they're just going to run it the way they want to run it? Or are some of the more adventurous types, who were the al-Qaeda of, of old, I suppose, uh, are they going to try and spread across the world and do damage? Well, Mike, you know, I mean, we have had these this stories repeatedly, including from the Americans mm. and, and some of our own ministers, that the Taliban have changed. You know, it's a new Taliban you know, they're reformed. But if you look at the composition mm. of the government, these are all people from 20 years ago, right. all their sons. You know, they're all male, yeah. all Pashtun, so every other community, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, have been excluded. Yeah. Uh, and there are people like Haqqani who have actually got a, a bounty on his head. Right. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, in, in my view, that they'll start attacking other countries. But what it does mean is that in the 20 years, there has been a huge amount of intermingling between the Taliban and the Haqqani network and ISIS-K, ISIS-Khorasan mm. and Al-Qaeda. And certainly, I think it's, it's, it's difficult to, to differentiate in certain places as, as to who's who. Mm. So even if the Taliban you know, don't want to carry out attacks abroad, they probably don't. They want to you know, impose their version of um, Islamic law in Afghanistan. The fact is that there will be people there you know, who's whose raison d'etre in life is, is, to, is to conduct jihad. Of course. And while we're told that their financial situation isn't good, it's going to get a lot better, isn't it? As the Chinese kind of move in, uh, as the mining of lithium starts to, to go ahead, um, and as they become more stable, they will have plenty of money should they wish to use it in, in that way. Well, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, of course, another, one of the ironic things is that one of the reasons given by the U.S. administration for pulling out of Afghanistan is that they want to focus on the in Chinese influence. And of mm. course, we know the biggest winners in Afghanistan are the Chinese. Yeah, right. And the Taliban have said the Chinese are now our main ally. Yeah. So yes, I mean, so they've got the concessions on lithium and copper, as you say. And the fact is, you know, the IMF and the World Bank will have to give funds to Afghanistan. You can't starve the people who right. punish the Taliban. Mm. That will be moral, basically. Right. And the other thing, Mike, is you, know, you don't need that that much money to carry out. Well, as, as we've public. seen, you know, I mean, in, in the end, there are so many different things that have happened in terms of the way terror happened. I mean, we were talking about 7-7 earlier in the show, um, which was effectively carried out by four guys from Leeds, you know, with backpacks and not very much else. Mm. 
Um, and so you don't, as you say, you, you don't need to fly a plane into a building. You don't need to put a massive, um, you know, fertilizer bomb outside a, an office. There's all sorts of ways you can do it. And, and, and because of what we saw in New Zealand the other day, people were wondering if that's the beginning of, of something, whether people will be kind of empowered around the world if they have those thoughts, that that's what they're going to do. Well, I mean, there's undoubtedly, you know, what, what happened in, in, in Afghanistan is a great boost for Islamists. Mm. You know, quite understandably, you know, they've, uh, they've defeated a, a, the superpower yeah. in, in, in the world. You know, that's a moral... Well, they've defeated everyone, really, haven't they? Well, over the years, yeah, over the years. But I think this one was um, more of a retreat than a, than a defeat. But, um, but you know, it, it undoubtedly will, will, will boost um, the morale of, of, of the jihadists. Mm. And again... And if you recall, of course, the reason that the West went into Afghanistan was because it became ungoverned yeah. space, and then you had Al Qaeda and others, and 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 what we've got to see is whether it will become become ungoverned space again, yes. or whether the Talibs will live up to what they've said that you know mm. they will not allow their territory for attacks abroad. Because you were there, of course, when that terrible bomb went off at uh, at Kabul airport. Um, well, well, when that just shows, Mike, that you know the Taliban aren't the only Islamists in. Well, doesn't it just? And, and I thought it was quite ironic that the Taliban were then, um, you know, re- saying how much they regretted terrorist incidents and and how terrible it all was because forty two, I think, of their own men were killed in that from ISIS K. Yeah, yeah. Um, have they now made peace with ISIS K? Well, I mean, it was always very nebulous as to at what extent there were, you know, there there, there were cooperations between. ISIS K and 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 Al Qaeda and and Taliban etc. But I think you know one thing perhaps worth remembering is that so because of the airport bombing, horrific as it was, you know I think the final figure I think it's 170, mm. probably a bit less, and of course 12 or 13 US troops killed. It suddenly ISIS K came onto the international news. But yeah. Mike, for two years before that, you know they had been carrying out massacres in Afghanistan, mm. you know mainly sectarian ones aimed at aimed at uh, Shias, you know, they, they, they killed 85 schoolgirls in attack on a school in Kabul. Mm. You know, they, they attacked a maternity ward and, and killed newborn babies and pregnant mothers, 2028. But because it was happening internally... Um, and we didn't know, hear much about that. There wasn't much coverage mm. at all. So mm. ISIS-K was there before, is there now. It's a question of, you know, how, how much of a footprint they will have in the future. Yeah, exactly. Know. And that's the other worry that I suppose you would have about the region in general. You've got Iran to one side, you've got Pakistan to another side, you've got obviously China. I mean, Pakistan is is, is not entirely kind of insulated, is it, from Islamic uh, terrorism and Islamic fundamentalists? Well, that's an interesting debate that's going on in Pakistan now that mm. I've certainly I have heard from my Pakistani friends, you know, some of them in the, you know, in, 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 in the military. And, and and this is a problem, you see. I mean, they have basically strategically won in Afghanistan now. The Taliban government at the moment is beholden to the Pakistanis. The first foreign uh, official there was the head of uh, ISI, the yeah. Pakistani Intelligence Service, yeah. uh, the Serena Hotel. However, you know, the, the, the problem is that you, you cannot insulate yourself from extreme jihadism. Right. And Pakistan, as you know, as you point out yourself, Mike, has had their share of, of, of dreadful terrorist right. attacks. And if, you, if you've got a situation just across the border, a very porous border, mm. you know, where, which now becomes an incubating ground for, for more extremism, then 
Yeah, Nina, Pakistan yeah. has need to worry as well. And they've got, what, something like 3 million or so refugees from Afghanistan uh, and, and already there, right? Already there, and it's growing. And if you see, you know, the, 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 the pictures from the border, you know, they are, you know, they are... People are fleeing. You yeah, know, every every direction they can. In, in the thousands, by the way. In the thousands. Things. Yeah. Which again, you know, going back to, we say another world in two thousand one. Um, what we saw then were these refugees coming back mm. from uh, Iran, Pakistan, you know, to back to their homes, yes. back to their villages, and and you know, and, and and the ones from the west, you know, going back to rebuild their country. So, right. so the the difference between then and now is is so stark. You know, so diametrically different. Yes, and I think I was reading the other day that they've they've gone back to the government, uh, the Ministry of Virtue, whatever it was called, where they've got um, a, a minister who will be in charge, basically, of beating up men who show, cut their beards or and, and shave women, their beards and, and women. women who show yeah. their uh, wrists, right? Well, I mean, it, 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 it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's amazing. Not, it, it's not surprising what they did. Well, they shut down the Ministry of Women's Affairs. Right. And, and restarted the Ministry of uh, Prevention of Vice and Promotion of Virtue. Mm. Uh, you know, which, which, I mean, that is, they will, they'll run the religious police, yeah. you know, who will ensure, as you say, the men have the right length beard and women. It's extraordinary. Dominic Raab went out to Qatar and then uh, Pakistan, and it seemed to me that was all a bit after the stable door had been uh, left open far too long the horse had already bolted it didn't seem to me that there was much point in that trip really well i mean you know he i think i think in, in that trip what he said was that the uk will put together an international coalition mm. um to hold the taliban to account but what, how that, do you do that well one how do you do it and also two there doesn't seem to be much appetite for that in western europe anyway and certainly not in america um, so I'm assuming we now just ignore Afghanistan and let and let them stew in their own juice, if that's the right phrase. But surely we need to have some kind of intelligence um, presence there, don't we? Well, I mean that will continue, you know, with with, with, with satellite um, surveillance, mm. etc. Um, but I think what will be missing is, is the human intelligence, and the fact is that the Afghan intelligence service, the NDS, National Director of Security, was actually quite good. Mm. And because they were quite good, you know, their their officers tended to get murdered with great regularity, much mm. more so, you know, if you like, than the Afghan military. So that, you know, the eyes and the ears on the ground um, will go. Right. And, of course, the assets the West had on the ground, MI6, CIA, you know, they have gone under the Doha Agreement. Right. So there, there, there will be a, a vacuum there. The only thing I would say is that, you know, there are other countries regionally who, who want to... Um, has stability in Afghanistan. Qatar has played a big part. Yes. You know, the but they've also been linked with sort of funding the Taliban in many ways as well, haven't they? They have the Qatari, you know, not just Taliban, but, you know, the they, they other... And Hezbollah even. I mean, because the Iranians have always had sort of links, haven't they, with, with Qatar, and the rest of the Gulf states are not very keen. Well, they have the, the, the standoff, of course, yeah. as you say. Yeah. But you know, the Qataris I've spoke to on the way out, you know, officials, I think they do want... Um, they do want to maintain some stability, and you know, they help to open the, the airport. Mm. Um, I think the Qatari foreign politics has changed uh, a lot since yeah. then, um, and and of course, you know, Mike, they've got the money to invest in 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 uh, in Afghanistan. One thing I would say, um, speaking to some of the younger Taliban leaders in Qatar as well as Afghanistan, is that you know. They don't want to be dependent on just one state. Right. They don't want, for example, Pakistanis to own them. Mm. You know, so they've got the Chinese coming in. Right. You know, they, you know, they want Middle East money. They want Qatari money. 
So, you know, their, their, their need for funding, you know, could be a, a moderating influence. Yes, and so they have become slightly more sophisticated, I guess, in, in, in that sense, if, if nothing else. But tell us about what it was like at Kabul Airport, because, um, you know, as, as I say, you reported into us from there, uh, as well as writing for The Independent every day. But it, it must have been quite a frightening place to be at times. I know that you've been in some dangerous war zones in your career, but, it, I mean, what was the situation? Were you in a hotel there? How was it? Well, we, we we had rooms in two hotels, the Serena, which was then taken over by the Taliban, and, mm. and, and another called the Barons, mm. which was near the airport, adjacent to the airport. And when we arrived, you know, the Barons was a purely a private hotel, right. and, you know, run by a, 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 a private company. And then the British forces arrived, and, and it became the processing center uh, for people trying to get to the UK. But... But because of the juxtaposition of the Baron uh, on the way into the airport, it also became the sort of feeder route mm. for people trying to get to America, right. you know, Germany, France, Japan, uh, um, you know, Turkey. So the outside of the Baron was the place where they all, all sort of met. And then just further down, there was a, a Taliban checkpoint, which uh, was sometimes good, sometimes not so good. And then further after that, there was Haqqani network checkpoint who were normally, you know, quite hostile. Mm. So, 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 so that area, that road, which is outside the airport, you know, did become the focal point of people trying to get to the airport. And there you had the, you know, the, 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 the horrific crashes, you know, you had um, people dying of, yeah. of, of heat, of, you know, um, after being trampled yes. to death. And there was that terrible kind of sewage problem as well wasn't it where they're all standing sort of knee deep in this ghastly water well i mean you know i mean i mean that was it you know that that channel ran all the way mm. from from outside the baron hotel to abbey gate where the americans were right. and and in it was just a you know a, a, a desperate desperate situation yeah. and well was it frightening i mean you know it it, it was at times but I, I would say more than that and i'm and i'm the only one in all my colleagues there were only a few of us at there you know um felt um a extremely distressed by what we saw, especially mm. when you see children, women um, suffering and, and dying in front of you. Yeah. Uh, but it, it wasn't just us. You know, we we, we the 16 air assault, the, the paratroopers were there, parachute regiment was there, and you know, there's a generational change there. So we had young kids coming up to us and saying that, you know, I've, I've never seen anyone die. Yeah. I don't want to see people die like this. Right. And then you know, we met people we had met in Iraq, Afghanistan. You know, been. In service for 12, 15 years, and 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 they were saying that, you know, they had never seen anything like it. Mm. They'd never been anywhere like it, and and you know, th they wish they'd never have to do it again. So yeah. It was a, you know, it was a, an awful, awful scene, Absolutely. and it went on, you know, day after day. It did, and finally, um, we're used to seeing sort of the big American companies moving in, aren't we? After places like when Iraq was 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 supposedly finished, and you'd get Halliburton or somebody going yep. in, and all these big contractors. Is that going to happen in Afghanistan? Except it's going to be Chinese companies rather than American ones. Well, Chinese and Russian, I'd have thought. Yeah. Um, now, what's interesting, um, ironic, I think, Mike, is that um, an Afghan friend was telling me that Bagram Air Base, you know, which became the the center of of U.S. operations mm. against the um, insurgency apparently will be taken over by the Chinese. And, you of know, course. They've got engineers going, allegedly going in there yeah. and, and soldiers as well. So, so that symbolically that shows how the, you know, how, how the balance of power yeah. is, is changing there. They don't even have to invade anywhere anymore. They just no. have to wait, no. to stand around for a while and then suddenly they can just walk in. 
Absolutely. Right. Incredible. Maybe that's the new world order. Well, Kim, great to see you. Glad you got back safely. Um, And, you know, maybe don't go anywhere dangerous for a while. (laughs) Thank you, mate. Stay out of South London. (laughs) (laughs) Kim Sengupta from The Independent uh, talking about uh, the uh, anniversary tomorrow, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And now, because she's in the United States of America, I'm going to say a very good morning rather than afternoon to Lindsay Fidefield. Lindsay, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I'm going to ask you just first of all, Lindsay, what what, what memories you have, if any, of, of what happened on that terrible day uh, 20 years ago. Um, obviously, it's, it's the anniversary tomorrow. Um, where were you and what do you remember? Gosh, I was 16 years old. I was homeschooled, so we weren't allowed to watch a lot of television. So I do remember them bringing the TV out and my parents actually letting us watch a lot of television that day. My uncle was actually working in the Pentagon um, during 9-11 or around that time. Right. He wasn't he wasn't there during the attack, thank God. Um, but it did take us a while to, to know that. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, talking to you today. Um, a lot of people, you know, when you think of the special relationship, you think of Margaret Thatcher and Reagan. I actually do think of the UK because I remember uh, the Queen breaking protocol and having them play the Star Spangled Banner, our national anthem, during the changing of the guard. Yeah. And what that meant for us was to see that not just that America was coming together on that horrible day, but that the whole civilized world was behind us and that we were all going to unify to fight this together. And it was really a horrible, horrible time. But as a as a young person, I mean, this is a formative experience for me that's changed the course of my life. Mm. It really showed that um, this is the kind of world that we live in, where they're the, the good guys and the bad guys and the good guys are with us. And um, so it's been a really difficult past couple of weeks with all of the things going on in Afghanistan now with Biden's malfeasance. 
been very difficult. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll come on to Biden in, in a moment because I believe that what he's done now has made this world a much more dangerous place. And I'm worried about what his foreign policy is, is going to be going uh, going forward. But but America changed, I think, on that day as well, didn't it? Because it became um, much more wary, I think, as a nation, because I think as a nation, America had always been seen as this incredibly strong ally of the UK's kind of almost um, impenetrable, um, you know, kind of safe from from danger, able to look after its own people. And suddenly this was an occasion where they couldn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the important thing to remember about that is we also did have the 9-11 Commission after the attacks to find out why that was allowed to happen. Um, and, And there was accountability all the way down from top to bottom. And I think that, you know, we see that 62% of Americans now want to see the same thing happening with the malfeasance that's just happened in Afghanistan because we want answers and we want that same accountability. We, ha- we are now damaged so, so badly around the world, especially after Biden came to office saying, you know, we're going to be, uh, the America is back and we're going to unify and our allies are gonna love us again as if they suddenly you know, somehow hated us during the Trump administration, which I don't think was the case. No. Um, and now we see that we've, we've betrayed our allies uh, just as we've betrayed all of our service members and, and our veterans of the conflict. So I think it's, it's just a really difficult, uh, difficult time. Yes, and a lot of people have been asking in this country, you know, before we get onto the, the relationship between the UK and the US is, is what was it all for? You know, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan and now the Taliban are back, similarly, seemingly just as bad as they ever were. So what was was the reason for all of that, all of those lives lost and a lot more American lives lost than British ones? Yes, the Taliban now will have on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 control of more territory, more allies, more money and better gear, our gear, um, than they had on 9-11-2001. So I, I think there is a lot of disillusionment. I don't want to go into this anniversary angry. I know that I'm, I probably sound very angry right now, but I, I, I do want, and my, my husband's an Afghan war vet. My, my, I have a lot of family members. I've lost close friends in this conflict, many of them to suicide as well. And I think the important thing for us to remember, it was not for, for nothing. Their service was not for nothing because the global war on terror was a just uh, mission. And I do think that we, we need to remember that. We need to make sure that our service members know that what they did was not in vain, that there was a point to it and that we do appreciate their service. Yes. I mean, one of the things that we can't believe here is that the that Joe Biden was in such a rush to get out of Afghanistan that he left everything behind, you know, practically including the kitchen sink, you know, $85 billion worth of military equipment, more helicopters than any other country in NATO apart from the US has got, you know, Humvees, guns, weaponry, you know, machinery. Unbelievable, really. I can't believe it. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys have seen the same videos that we've seen of service members as they were leaving, trying to do what they could to smash the mm. engines and smash the windscreens and do whatever they could to, to damage at least some of the equipment on their way out. But there was very little that they could do because it was just so rushed, which mm. that's why I think so many people want answers. Like I said, 62%, a lot of Americans want a 9-11 style commission from Congress to find out what happened, why did we not only rush out, I think it it caught a lot of Americans by surprise, but it also caught our allies by surprise. And we should never have done anything to jeopardize our our alliances the way that we did, and especially with the Afghan allies that we've left behind. And now we're grappling with American hostage situations. And I think everyone's 
pretty terrified about how that's going to turn out. Yes, exactly right. Because certainly in the early days of this new uh, Afghan administration uh, run by the Taliban, it's not looking as though they're any different whatsoever from the way that they were uh, before, only slightly more sophisticated in making sure that they get a lot of money in from Qatar and China. Yes, exactly. And I think that's going to be a really, I mean, as we look ahead, I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. And I, I don't understand how, I'm not sure what you guys, how you guys are perceiving the Biden administration or, or, or how much you're following it, but there hasn't been a single person fired or held accountable within the Biden administration to this date, mm. even Secretary of State Blinken. I mean, half of Americans, 52% of Americans want President Biden himself to resign because of how, how angry people are about what has just happened. But I think the administration kind of knows that if they just sort of play it safe and keep going along, getting along, that people will forget about this in a few weeks. Sadly, I think they might be right. I, the cynical part of me thinks they might be right. I hope that they're not. I hope that people continue to focus on this and hold this administration to account um, for all the many crises. I mean, we were told the orange man is gone. America is back. Mm. And now um, it's not just the Afghanistan crisis. We have a border crisis, a humanitarian crisis there raging out of control, more record deaths. We were told, oh, kids in cages will be gone after Biden comes into office. That hasn't happened. We were told our economy would be back. That hasn't happened. Uh, uh, there's just crisis after crisis that we were told were going to be solved once the orange bad man mm. was gone. And we haven't seen it. So I think Americans are really frustrated with this administration. Well, also, I can't imagine a lot of Americans are going to be too happy with his latest um, sort of outburst last night in which he said that he wants everybody uh, to be mandatory vaccine. I can't believe it. I know. I don't know what I don't. I really the tone of that speech as well. He had more anger talking about the governors of states who are kind of resisting his mm. kind of dystopian mandates than he had talking about the Taliban on television the week before right. who killed our service members. I can't believe. So when he came out and he made this, you know, this speech talking about testing, talking about all these different, you know, the different mandates and this and that, I think Americans, by the way, most Americans now are vaccinated. Many, many Americans and vast majority of the elderly and the most vulnerable. I think there are some people who are kind of stuck in the in the middle and maybe just want to wait and see or maybe they don't want it for their children quite yet. And so I think there are people who feel very patronized and insulted by this administration. But now with this mandate, I think people are going to resist getting this vaccine more than ever yeah. because Americans don't like being told what to do. And so we are really uh, not happy about being, I, I did get the vaccine, I was pregnant. And so I felt like it was important for me to do. I did my research and I made my decision for myself. My husband did the same. I think that that's what Americans want to be mm. able to do. We want the information. We don't want to feel manipulated no. or cajoled into doing it. No, absolutely. And when Biden, Biden promised he wasn't going to do a mandate in January. And now he's, you know, he's also gone back on his word yeah. there. So people are pretty upset. Yeah, I'm not surprised because, um, as you say, people who supposedly were fed up with Donald Trump voted for Biden. An awful lot of them still voted for Trump, by the way. 75 million of them voted for Trump. But apparently that wasn't enough. Um, but no, I think from our point of view here in the UK, uh, we're very disappointed um, in Joe Biden in the way that he um, has treated us as a country uh, who seems to say to, to us that we, he doesn't really care about a special relationship. You know, in fact, he's more interested in interfering in Northern Ireland um, than he is in actually, you know, helping the UK uh, to be the world's policeman. Now, he may think that he doesn't want America to be the world's policeman, but let's face it, if America doesn't do that, then we're left with China. 
Absolutely. It is time. I, I, I do think that people are waking up to just how dangerous it is when America is not leading, how dangerous the world can be. And hopefully some changes will come in the next election. And in our midterms that are coming up, I really hope that some changes will be made and we'll be able to kind of swing back this balance of power, um, especially with all the dangerous overreach that we see within our own country and around the world. Yeah, exactly right. Because I had a, a, a guest in earlier on on the show who was just come back from Ta- Afghanistan. He was, he was a journalist out there at Kabul Airport. And he was telling me that basically China are now going to take over Bagram Air Base. They've walked in to a country they didn't even have to invade. They've just literally got off a plane and they've got engineers in there. They've got electricians. They've got people who are going to make it um, a, a Chinese run military installation effectively. And as I say, uh, they didn't have to shoot one bullet. And none of this had to happen. I think that's, I I just got chills as you were describing the situation there because not only did none of this need to happen, you know, they keep going back and saying, well, America's, they wanted us to withdraw. Everyone wanted us out of Afghanistan. That's not necessarily true. Mm. We didn't want them to withdraw in the way that they've done. That is the problem. It's not, you know, it was, it was the rolling out of this disastrous plan, the malfeasance at every level. That is what people are upset with. Even if we have had withdrawn in a better way, abandoning Bagram at the very beginning, mm. what were we thinking? I, I'm not very well versed on all of this, but at least I know that that is a, was a ridiculous move. And now we see the consequences mm. rolling well, out. Well, I mean, I, I'm like you. I, you know, I'm not a military strategist, but it seems to me that <laughs> if you're going to pull out of a country, you don't leave the airport first. You, you leave the airport last, don't you? After you get the people out, yeah. after you get your allies out, after you get your gear out. Because now we have a Taliban using not it's not just about the weaponry. I mean, the weaponry is important, but I was reading a report earlier about they now have night vision goggles, 16,000 pairs of night vision goggles where our our boys used to have the advantage of of being able to operate in Mm. the dark and knowing that they could not do so. We don't have that advantage anymore. What is going to happen? when inevitably we do have to return to this area and i do think that we will to to stabilize the region i don't know maybe i maybe i'm wrong about that but i I just think that we've empowered them way more than we we ever should have and there's no reason why we should have left any of that stuff behind no and i think the other problem which a lot of people have mentioned here as well is places like taiwan uh, who previously would have looked to america for protection if the chinese decided they wanted to just walk in there they don't really now have any hope that they will be rescued by the U.S. because the U.S. has, has basically proven that they're not reliable anymore. Isn't it terrible? It I is. think that's ter- that was that's exactly the message. And and I saw friends from Taiwan saying that as things were unrolling um, in Afghanistan, that was exactly the message that they were sending. Was my God? Now not only I mean it was just a, a great a great message to our adver- adversaries, Russia and China, that hey. America is not necessarily back. You guys can do whatever you want and there will be no consequences. And it's a really terrifying message to be sending of our weakness to the world. Yeah. And what do you think Joe Biden is going to do tomorrow? I don't know whether there are plans for some kind of commemoration of any kind. I mean, he probably should go to New York, but I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't. The thing, I don't want to be ugly. I really don't. I hate, I want to respect the office of the presidency. I never disrespected, even during the Obama administration. I worked in Washington. We do try not to, or I at least try not to be too disrespectful. I don't want to be ugly, but my gosh, I, I am very disappointed in this administration. I want to, I don't want to say anything ugly, but I, I'm sure he's going to be propped up drinking an Ovaltine or something. Uh, maybe he'll go and, and be at some kind of commemorative ceremony. I don't think he'll be very welcome. 
Um, I'm sure they'll find a nice group to sit around him if he if he does make it out. My husband and I will be at the Air Force uh, Air Force Academy versus Naval Academy game in Annapolis right here outside of Washington, D.C. My husband went to the Naval Academy. Um, that'll be a very, I think, emotional um, game for, for, for us and for everyone there who most of them served in the conflict. And many of these young people weren't alive. Many of these young midshipmen mm. were not born yet when 9-11 when happened. And so it is, it is up to us not just to remind them of what happened and to share those stories, but to now tell them that their service is not going to be for naught. Because mm. I could see a lot of disillusionment and cynicism amongst them saying, Wait a minute! I I signed up for you know to serve my country, and now I'm seeing um, that doing so could just be for be for nothing. Yes. That's the perception, and it's up it's up to us to make sure that they know that's not the case, and that Amer America is still worth fighting for. Um, and I, I I hope that that's the message that people take away tomorrow as well. I don't really care what Biden does tomorrow. Yeah. I know that's where we'll be. Yes, and finally, Lindsay. I mean, if it turns out that all of this. Um was for the midterm elections just to keep him popular. I mean, that would be worse than anything, really, wouldn't it? Well, I don't think they expected things to go this way. I really, the funny thing, I mean, I, I would hope they didn't expect things to go this way. I think they thought they were going to get this beautiful optic victory on 9-11, the 20th anniversary, to be able to say, look at us, we we got us out, we did it. And I and they, they wanted that moment and the hubris of that you know, and their lack of expertise. They didn't listen to the, the expertise of the of the people who mm. were advising them. They just plowed forward and said, no, we want this optic victory and we're not going to take no for an answer. We're going to do it. Surely it'll be fine. The Taliban won't be empowered. It'll be it'll be fine. And they were very, very wrong. And I hope that in the midterms, that is what people remember. Lindsay, very good to talk to you, and I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Lindsay Fifield there, uh, who is the social media manager with the Heritage Foundation in the United States of America, Washington, D.C., where tomorrow uh, there will be all sorts of commemorations going on uh, for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, we're going to continue with our look back at uh, what happened 20 years ago. Uh, tomorrow's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, an awful lot of people were affected by it, not just uh, on the day itself, but in the weeks and months that followed. And even now, um, I was talking to my sister earlier on, um, it's very much part of, of our history as a family. It's very much part of our time uh, in America together as well. Um, and it really is something that has affected so many people, I think, for so long. We're going to talk now to Sujo John, who's a survivor uh, of the attack on the World Trade Center, because he had moved uh, in February 2001 with his wife Mary from India to start a new life in America. They were both working, believe it or not, on the day of the attack in the World Trade Center. He worked on the 81st floor of Tower 1, and his wife Mary worked on the 71st floor of Tower 2. Let's talk to uh, Sujo now uh, and find out what his story is. Sujo, very good afternoon to you. Hi there. Uh, great to talk to you and uh, a good day to everyone in the UK. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I've read um, your story as it's been told to me, and it really is quite incredible um, that you were able to get out at all. You were on the 81st floor. Tell us, um, first of all, what happened when, when you realised that the plane had hit the tower? I'm sure, Mike, uh, you've heard many reports of people saying how beautiful the day was yeah. 20 years ago, uh, you know, 20 years ago to tomorrow. Uh, it was a beautiful, clear day and then everything changes. So I was on the 81st floor and it started off as a normal day. 
and I'm looking out of the windows and on clear cloudless days, you could get to see the view, amazing view of the Statue of Liberty. And I'm standing by this fax machine when I'm sending some paperwork over to our office in Philadelphia. When I hear this incredible explosion, the buildings are shaking violently. Uh, it was American Flight 11 flying coast to coast from Boston to LA, flying at 440 miles an hour, had come crashing into our tower. Uh, so the angle at which the plane now uh, went in resulted that part of the wing of the plane tears into our floor um, and uh, with all the jet fuel that it dumped, fire breaks out around us uh, and we are on the carpet, our faces flat on the carpet, 28 of us in the office and I'm lying there saying, I'm never going to see my wife again, I'm never going to see the child she's carrying, I'm never going to see my parents. So there was this complete fear and shock that overwhelmed everyone. But someone on our floor rallies us and he says, we've got to beat this fire. So we start crawling away from that space looking for the nearest stairwell. Wow. So you were literally crawling across the floor. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, everything was collapsing around us. Even as we looked up, we could see a huge crater. We could actually see kind of 10 floors directly above us. Wow. And the fire was raging all around you. I mean, did any of you get burned as you were trying to get out? No, we actually, on our floor, we were very blessed that nobody died or nobody uh, got caught up in that fire. But we actually had six people who, who died to that fire on our floor. Mm. And so how far do you think you crawled? Because I was in the World Trade Center when it was up and I used to go there quite frequently for meetings. I was in Windows on the World quite a lot. You know, it was a big building. So, I mean, if you were a long way from a stairwell, you could have been crawling for a while. Yes, actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, you rightly said how big it was. It was one square mile each of these buildings. This yeah. is a gigantic. Um, and so there were four sets of stairwells in that building. Mm. Uh, the closest stairwell was, was, to us, was towards our right. But before we could get to that stairwell, we had to cross the place where the elevators were. Now, the elevator shafts were right in the middle of the towers. And the jet fuel had come down the elevator shaft and balls of fire were shooting out of that place. So it right. was it was quite challenging making our way to the stairwell. Right. And so once you got to the stairwell, were there other people there? Did you feel as though you were safe? I mean, how did you uh, how did you go on from there? Well, on the stairwell, there were hundreds, thousands of people joining us. And one thing in common, the fear of death written on everyone's face. Mm. But people were trying to just help each other. The best of people were coming out. But I looked at my watch and it's past 8.45 in the morning. And I'm thinking my wife is on the other tower and I'm trying to reach her through my cell phone. Cell phones aren't working. No one knew what was going on. And now it's almost 9.03 in the morning. I think about 17 minutes past the first plane that had crashed in. We're still in the stairwell. We hear another explosion, and this is the second plane mm. crashing into the second tower. Uh, but we get to the 43rd or the 44th floor, and I see a sight that I will never forget. Hundreds of firemen and policemen racing, making their way up as we are going our way down. And it was really incredible watching them because they were carrying all kinds of equipment, yeah. uh, gas, uh, gas cylinders. Uh, we had no idea then that that would be the last time the world would be seeing the faces of these incredible heroes. Yes, it was an amazing uh, thing that they did. And I still even now can't quite believe that, that they were rushing up those stairs as everyone else was was rushing down them. And at that point, you must have thought um, if another I mean, were you aware that it was two planes or were you just aware of an explosion? That's very interesting. You know, so much time has uh, passed uh, since 9-11 and mm. our world has changed in a way. Uh, so for those who are watching or listening, you remember 20 years ago, if you were alive then, you know, our phones did not have Internet. You know, uh, phones didn't even have I don't think they were, there was even texting. No. So there was no way to find out on our phones what was going on. Mm. 
uh, we all had the old flip phones where you can just make phone calls, not even cameras to actually take pictures or video, right. but actually they were pagers. Um, and so someone running on the stairwell, he got a message on his pager that a plane had crashed in. Right. But but for me and all of us, you know, our, our focus was how do we get out of that building? And we didn't quite make sense of what was going on around us. Right. And so presumably it took you quite a long time to get all the way down the stairs. Correct. It took me an hour and 20 minutes to come down 81 floors because the moment the firefighters start coming up, it slowed down a little bit. Right. Uh, it felt like eternity. It felt it was more than that. It felt like time had stopped still. You feel like you're part of a movie because, you know, there's uh, the sprinklers are on on some some levels on the stairwell. There was water. Uh, uh, the fire smoke alarms were going off. But the amazing thing was there's still power in the building. Uh, you know, we still yeah. had light in the stairwell. I think of that often and I wonder, you know, there were literally thousands of people coming down a, a pretty narrow stairwell uh, if it were being dark. And mm. for us to come down 81 floors, it would have been a nightmare. And your wife was on the 71st floor of the second tower and that plane, I think, hit slightly lower down, didn't it? Correct. Uh, but her story is incredible. She was late to work by two minutes. She gets off the last E-train by then the North Towers hit, so she's literally pushed out of the building uh, and was not allowed to go up, and that's what spared her life. But oh, wow, so she, was, she, she wasn't horrific... actually up there. Yeah, so she sees the horrific cycle of people jumping out of the building and bodies landing around her. And to make things worse for my wife, my last working day, I signed up a life insurance policy. So on September 10th evening, as she's trying to get fall asleep, I woke her up and said, I got to talk to you about something. And she's like, what is it? I said, it's called death. And she's like, why are you talking about death? We are young. I said, there's a baby on the way. She was right. pregnant at that time. If something would have happened to me, this is what uh, you need to Amazing. do. So there was all these thoughts uh, that, you know, we had talked about death and she's watching this thing happen around her. Incredible. And I mean, it must be something, obviously, you know, for me, who wasn't even there, it's quite traumatic to look at the, the footage of what happened. I mean, are you um, sort of haunted by it? I mean, does tomorrow fill you with dread? How do you feel about the 20th uh, year? Uh it's a great question. You know, for me, my life has changed in so many ways. And, uh, it's you know, when we go through the storms of life and those that are watching or listening to me, we all have stories and we all go through the valley moments of life. But what, hap what what's important is what do we do with them? And so for me, uh, you know, my story was covered in a lot of networks around the world. And uh, people started calling me to share my story. It's mm -hmm. also a story of my faith. Uh, and I became a motivational speaker. And then I also started a nonprofit uh, called You Can Free Us, and we have a chapter in the UK too. Um, and You Can Free Us, what we do is we rescue women and children sold into sex trafficking around the world. So I started that nonprofit uh, after 9-11. So I've been very busy. My life has just been incredibly busy. And I found some focus. You know, mm. I've been building on, um, you know, how do I leave the world a better place and finding it? So in that way, uh, you know, 9-11 put me on a different path. But tomorrow it's going to be difficult. Every 9-11 anniversary is difficult. But yeah. this this time around, I think it's a little different because of what the scenes that you see in Afghanistan. Um, and it's a, it's a very it's very sad the way America exited 9-11 with no strategy and no planning. And we feel like, you know, even I'm talking to an audience in the UK, I feel like America let down its allies even in the UK, friends like you guys. Yeah. Uh, because when 9-11 happened, everybody came and stood for America, supported America. And I know on 9-11, it wasn't just America that was attacked. 200 Britishers were killed on 9-11. Um, and, and so I've seen incredible response to my story, even in the UK. So the world was attacked. Our way of life was attacked. Yeah. Um, and so we felt safe for the last 20 years, in a way. We felt like we were on the up against the terrorists. But now, because of what's 
happened there. And everyone listening to me, you know, Afghanistan is a hotbed of terrorists. Um, and whether it's Taliban or Al Qaeda, uh, the, the only difference is between Pepsi and Coca Cola. It's one yeah. and the same thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm worried about what could happen in, in free societies like in UK, across Europe and America in the next few months or years. And you're a child who was unborn on that day, um, 1920 now? Yeah, yes, sir. He's 19 years of age, and since then we've had two other children, so we are very blessed. That is good. Uh, when I think of my son or talk about my son, I think of 3,000 babies that were born uh, to someone who died, on uh, fathers who died on 9 11. Yes, it's a it's an incredible story. Uh, Sujo John, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. What a story uh, that John has, uh, Sujo John has, uh, and an incredible story, really, uh, of um, just survival from something that probably he shouldn't have survived. It really is incredible uh, to think of what happened on that day and how many people uh, did actually get out of that building. Really quite remarkable. Uh, this is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We are, of course, uh, in uh, uh, about to enter uh, tomorrow, the 20th anniversary uh, of 9-11. I was watching a documentary last night, which was uh, which included actually an old friend of mine, a guy called uh, Dick Oliver, who used to work for Fox News uh, in the US. He was actually downtown in Manhattan when the plane first hit the first tower. Um, and he was one of the first journalists actually on the scene to report it because they were already filming for something else. Somebody else who was also in Manhattan the day that the, the attack happened uh, was my sister, Mari Bryan, uh, who, of course, has lived in New York now for probably the best part of nearly 30 years. Uh, she's the person I go and visit in Connecticut. Uh, she's on the phone uh, and on the video uh, phone, I think, now. Mari, a very, very good morning. Welcome to the Independent Republic. Hello, good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Tell us... Um, what happened for you? Because you were, of course, working um, in the financial business in New York and you knew an awful lot of people who died, sadly, on that day. You were actually on the phone, I think, to somebody when the plane hit, weren't you? Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those days which was a beautiful blue September morning. Um, I still kind of call it a 9-11 kind of day when it's like a really blue sky. And, yeah. and when we watched the first plane hit, when we were in the trading room and we were kind of wow, it's a really blue sky day. How on earth could that plane have hit the trades of the North Tower without, you know, by accident? It just didn't make any sense. Mm. Um, and we had brokers who were on the 102nd floor of, um, of the North Tower uh, that we had live on a voice box. And they, none of them got out. None of them got out. Um, that was just one of those things that happened that day. And when the second plane hit, um, we watched that live. I mean, I wasn't downtown. Our office was in Midtown, but um, it suddenly was, you didn't know what was going to happen next. We were right next to Grand Central. We were, there were all sorts of stories about how many planes there were that were missing, that were, they didn't have their trackers on before they grounded everything. Um, it was a very scary time to be in Manhattan. It really was. And I remember you and I having a, a very long conversation later that day because I was trying to urge you to get the hell out because I think everyone in the world was concerned that this was just the beginning of something and that was not, the second plane going in was not the end. And we knew uh, about Flight 93 at that point, which was uh, somehow forced to crash into, uh, uh, crash into a field in Pennsylvania. And of course, the fourth plane, which hit the Pentagon. 
Yeah, and I think when the, uh, when the plane hit the Pentagon was when I got the most scared because it was then like, how many planes are there? Mm. Um, and of course, I'd also just put our parents on a plot to put them in a car that morning to go to JFK to the airport to fly back to London because they'd been with me for a couple of weeks. Right. Um, and I remember you and I talking about like, there was about an hour because they were on an American flight when I didn't know whether one of the, whether the plane that they were on was one of those planes. Mm, that's right. And I think it turned out that they, they were just about to take off when the first plane hit the first tower, and which meant that all planes were then grounded. So I don't think they did take off, and I think they ended up staying another night, didn't they? Well, they stayed two nights at JFK because nobody was allowed back into Manhattan. Right. So they actually were on a were on cots in a hotel at JFK because there were so many people who were there. Um, and mommy called me on somebody else's cell phone because mm. in those days everybody didn't have cell phones. Yeah. And she certainly didn't. Um, and they finally got back into Manhattan on the Thursday. And I think you were the one who got them flights back to London on the Saturday because I couldn't get through to American Airlines at all yeah. that week. Mm. Um, oh, it, was it was, just, it was uh, an unbelievable scene. And what about the streets <laughs> of Manhattan? Because did you stay in your office? Did you leave the office? What did you do? Well, I had to stay in the office because I was kind of management and we had to manage the risk. We had to transfer all our phones. I worked for a Swiss bank at that, at that point and we had to transfer all our phones to Zurich um, so that clients could get in touch and they could, you know, obviously the stock market closed, but, but there were other markets that were open around the world. Um, and I ended up leaving the office probably on that day around two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. Um and it was very eerie. The whole of Manhattan was completely silent. And by that time, they'd closed down all the airspace and all that were flying um, were F-16s yeah. above Manhattan. Like the noise of F-16s was very bizarre yeah. and very weird. And I, my apartment at that point um, was on 34th Street, right opposite NYU, uh, the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, they had gurneys laid out outside the hospital. But of course, they never found anybody. I mean, they never no. found anybody. So everybody was waiting. Um, and my view at that point from my balcony, I uh, from my apartment, um, was right downtown. Right. And I, the smoke at that point was going over the, uh, over the island into Brooklyn. I'm sure you remember that yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, the next morning, though, um, it came right up to me. The wind changed. So my apartment was covered in dust the next day. Yeah. Um, and it was this smell of burning electrics and sheetrock and yeah. that kind of thing. It, it was... It was, and that, that was my view for six months. And there were tanks on the street as well at one point, weren't there? Yeah, there were. There were. Um, there were there were Humvees and uh, National Guard uh, tanks and, and the FDR, which I looked down on, which is the main route down to downtown, mm. um, was full of, uh, the only sound you heard was sirens. Yeah. And now New York, for me, is a very different city. 
Well, you know, I mean, you know, once it once once the pile was there and it was that there were art lights above it for months and months and months and months. And and the guys that worked on it did an amazing job of clearing it. It was very emotive for a long time. I mean, I, you know, that you couldn't go downtown for a long time because the, the dust was all over the place and all the way up to Houston Street. Mm. And gradually they opened they opened downtown and and me and friends used to go down and eat at the restaurants downtown as much as we possibly could because it would help them out um but yes i mean i I walk around new york and i mean obviously the pandemic means i haven't been in new york really that much in the last year and a half either but um it there are yeah it's interesting to walk around and you see Mm. people who you know were not there 9-11 they were still in school they were you know, kids who are working now were not there on 9-11. And it, and it was, um, you know, Annette, who you know well, was was down there as well as Dick Oliver on 9-11. And, and she and I both have very searing memories of that day and that week. Um, I think anybody who was there, you know, I didn't lose as many people as some people did, but um, it was a, it was a, it was a searing experience mm. to terrible. be there. A terrible day. Well, listen, thanks for talking to us, and I'll be talking to you, I'm sure, uh, over the course of the weekend. Um, a great debut on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We might get you on for some financial advice at some point soon. She's a lot cleverer than I am, uh, I can tell you that. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to go live to Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to be talking to another American commentator. Not so much about what happened on that day, but yes, we will do that. But also where we are now. Are we now a more dangerous world? Are we living in a more dangerous world than we did 20 years ago? Because it was pretty dangerous then. And I think Joe Biden and some of his policies have made it pretty dangerous now as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.